Just a warning, this episode contains references to depression and suicide. If you or someone you know is in need of support, please contact Lifeline on 0800 543 354 or free text 4357. In this episode of Recovering, award-winning television reporter Jahan Casanada talks with Reverend Frank Gritchie about the story of Harry McLean, who tragically took his own life at the age of 18. What viewers didn't know is at the time of telling the story, Jahan was privately grappling with his own experience of depression and suicidal thoughts. I'm Alicia Gordon from Media Chaplaincy in New Zealand. Throughout this series, broadcaster and media chaplain Reverend Frank Ritchie is joined by leading New Zealand journalists to unpack the one story from their career which has impacted them the most, personally and professionally. Jahan, as always, it's a pleasure to sit down with you and have you here in Auckland in our little studio when you reside back in Wellington now. So thanks yes. for joining us. Thanks for having me. And you know how much I hate talking about myself. <laughs> so you've done a good job of strong arming me into this. Uh, yeah, there's a little bit of pressure. But I think it's true of most journalists. You're so used to telling the story. Yeah. You're so good at telling the story that it's weird to have it turned around. I, tr- I promise, though, we'll be gentle cool. uh, and hopefully have a conversation that you get to the end of and go, that was great. Great chat. Sure. I'd love to start with the trajectory of your career because you were a bit sneaky in the way that you got started. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and started extremely young and have got to a place in your career now where for a lot of people it takes years and years to get there. So for those who aren't overly familiar with you, talk us through how you got started in journalism and, and a little bit of that trajectory. So I grew up in Lower Hutt in a migrant family. My parents had come to New Zealand from Sri Lanka during a civil war. My dad was a journalist over there. And so when my family came to New Zealand, I would sit around the dinner table and we'd have these really vigorous debates about things that were happening in the news. And my dad was a sub-editor at the Dominion at that time. So I would go in and look at the newsroom and it was something that I started to get an interest in at a really young age. I think I was four years old when I told my parents I wanted to be a TV reporter. (laughs) And I was 13 years old when I pitched my first story to the Holmes program and I wanted to do a story on Lord of the Rings. And they were crazy enough to allow me to come in. They gave me camera resource and I did a story for the Holmes program and I was hooked after that. I started writing for Tearaway magazine, which a lot of people will remember as a youth magazine in high school. And I got on the train and would go into Wellington and, you know, go up to the ninth floor of the Beehive and interview Helen Clark when she was the Prime Minister and Don Brash when he was the leader of the opposition. So it was exhilarating. And then when I was 15 or 16 years old, I started getting even more confidence and I pitched feature ideas to the Weekend Herald and the Sunday Star Times. And this was just before Facebook and Twitter. I didn't have an online presence. No one really expected you to have that. And they started commissioning these 2,000 word, 2,500 word features from me. They had no idea that I was a 16 year old kid sitting at home in Lower (laughs) Hutt. They were paying me market rates, which weren't great back then either. But I started to see my stories being quoted during question time by MPs and, and things like that. When I was 17, I got a slot on breakfast with Paul Henry. So I'd come into town. I was live on air at 7.20 on a Tuesday morning. Then I'd get changed into my school uniform and take the train out to Upper Hutt in time for the first period of school. So I managed to get into the industry at a young age. And 
the way I did that was by sticking around in the newsroom, by harassing producers, and by not taking no for an answer. And I found a folder the other day of some of the rejection letters that I got from the people that did find me out and were like, you're a teenager, you've got no journalism qualifications, there's no way that we would take you on. But I think I found just the right number of people that were like, "Mm, maybe this guy's got something, we'll give him a chance, and the rest is history. And how has the trajectory played out since? So, like, I'm very familiar with your career, but for those who aren't, what have you done? Well, I managed to get my first proper journalism job on Close Up, which was TV1's weeknight current affairs show when I was 20. So I did three years of that. I then did the first three years of Seven Sharp uh, with Mike Hosking and Tony Street. And then I moved to Auckland to work on the Sunday program, which was my dream. And I did four years on Sunday. I was really fortunate to cover some big events like the Christchurch terror attack And then I left, I moved back to Wellington because my mental health had deteriorated, I knew that I needed six months off. During that period, which was at the start of last year, so not ancient history, I decided that it was a good time to leave TVNZ to go out and do my own thing and to stay in Wellington. So what I'm doing now is uh, still contributing stories to TVNZ and stuff and other media outlets, but also speaking on mental health and storytelling. So I'm wearing a few different hats and it feels good. Mm. We're going to unpack your story soon in terms of the mental health as we talk about the story that you've chosen to talk about in this podcast. But I imagine in that very quick trajectory from uh, sending off proposals for columns when you're young to on to Sunday and just the the depth of some of those stories I would imagine how you've approached those stories has changed over the years yeah I grew up sitting in front of the TV looking at these journalistic heroes of mine who were traveling around the world and breaking stories and uh, busting politicians for doing dodgy things and you know having exclusives and I think that was probably my goal when I was young was to reach that level and to to be a kind of classic shoe leather journalist someone went out there and discovered stuff and uncovered stuff and I think what I found when I started doing it was that what I loved the most was the interview Mm. yeah and I think the other aspects of journalism I probably do fine I'm an okay writer I, I can gather information I can find stuff out but those aren't my strong points I think the thing that I'm most interested in is sitting down with someone who's been through something creating an environment of trust and safety where they feel that they can open up, where they can share the tough parts, the vulnerable parts, the messy parts of their journey, and then distilling and structuring that story in a way that the people watching, and let's face it, it's typically hundreds of thousands of people that will watch a story on television, that those people are able to take something from it that makes their lives better, that inspires them, that challenges them, that helps them in some way. And that in many ways is the kind of journalism that I've ended up doing. And so the stories that I do now are not necessarily front page stories or exclusive stories. Often they're about ordinary people who have been through something pretty extraordinary. And it's about finding out how those people have made sense of that. Mm. A common thread there then would be the brokenness, the sense of suffering. What's yeah. the what's the attraction there? I think I've always been fascinated by the darker <laughs> corners of life. And I think that's because I believe that 
suffering as a fundamental part of life. And I don't think that fits with the cultural narratives that we're surrounded by. I think in individualistic Western culture, we believe that we're entitled to a life of comfort and wealth and health and happiness. And the moment you fall below that benchmark, you think something is wrong with me, something has gone wrong, something is irreparably broken in me. But actually, if you live a little bit, you realize that everyone goes through hard stuff. Everyone suffers. We live in a world that has so much brokenness in it. But actually, my belief and my worldview, which is very much informed by my faith, my Christian faith, is that suffering doesn't have to be final, that actually suffering has a transformative quality. We can allow the tough stuff that we go through to change us on a deep level. And I guess that's what I'm looking for in every story that I do is how has this person allowed their suffering to transform them? What have they learned from it? And ultimately that hope, that sense of hope that even the worst stuff that we go through can be healed, that there can be redemption, that there can be restoration. So those are the themes that I look for. Mm, And those themes are very apparent in the story that we're going to talk about. But just before we get there, there's three stories in particular that I've been fascinated in your approach to them and how your approach is different from how I think others would approach them. And I think there's probably something of what you've just said and the lens you've taken into those interviews. So I think about uh, your exposés on Gloria Vale. There's a white supremacist group that you sat down with, even in how you approached the shooting in Christchurch, mm-hmm. the March 15 shooting. There's something different there. What are you seeing in those stories that other people might be missing because there's definitely a different tone in your approach. That's interesting. I wouldn't know whether I'm setting out to do something that is different necessarily or whether that's just the product of of the way that I work. I'm always curious as to why people make the decisions that they do and why they live in the way that they do. So when I turned up to work one day and was told, go to the airport and get on the next flight to the West Coast, get a rental car, drive to Gloria Vale and try and get in there, (laughs) which sounded nuts, right? This was at the time where Gloria Vale was all over the media. There was a lot of controversy around it. And so we turned up at dusk and they were incredibly suspicious and hostile, as you'd expect. And I had to sit down in the circle with, with 12 elders and explain why we wanted to come in there and film. And we were there talking for so long, basically night fell, and I think they just got so sick of this conversation, they were like, okay, you can stay overnight and yeah, whatever, you can film. But my interest there was showing a snapshot of what life was like inside that place because there had been so much speculation and conjecture about what was going on there. And still, we don't know a lot about many of the issues that we're concerned about in terms of the welfare, especially of children in Gloria Vale. But I just tried to let them talk And I think what they had to say was quite revealing. Now, people can make their own conclusions as to uh, whether they think that's right or wrong. But same with the white supremacists. I went to visit the white supremacists, not because I wanted to hang them out to dry or condemn them. I was genuinely interested in what makes someone so hateful. And what I found when I started talking to these guys in Palmerston North was that many of them had trauma. One guy said to me, I lost my manufacturing business to China and my wife left me for an Arab man. Now that's almost comical, right, when you lay those two reasons out. It does not, let me be clear on this, excuse his behavior or his choices or the hate that he's brought into the world. It doesn't excuse it, but it does provide an explanation for why 
he's made the choices that he's made. And I think often, particularly in this culture that's so driven by social media, we want to react to things very quickly. There's a lot of debate around cancel culture. We try and shut down dissenting voices. And I think there are some reasons why we should do that at times. But I think we can often miss out on the conversation. We can miss out on the context of what has this person actually been through? There's a really interesting movement coming out of the States called Trauma-Informed Care, And it aims to shift the question from what's wrong with this person to what happened to this person. Imagine a world, imagine an education system or a health system or a justice system that started with the question, what happened to you, rather than what's wrong with you. And I guess that's what I'm trying to bring into my journalism is what is this person's story. Mm. And I'd imagine curiosity would be a significant part of that, rather than sitting down with a preemptive idea about who this person is just sitting down yeah totally just sitting down genuinely curious and coming from that curiosity would make a difference coming back to the suffering and brokenness Mm. we're going to talk about a story that you did in 2017 the story of harry so for those who are not familiar with that story can you give us a, a brief synopsis In 2015, two years earlier, I was contacted by Maria Dillon, who is a mother in Christchurch, and her son, Harry McLean, was a young man who had taken his own life inside Hillmorton Hospital, inside a mental health unit. This story was uh, really striking for a number of reasons. One was... It was in the lead up to that period where mental health really hit the headlines. You know, we sort of felt that this momentum was building. We'd been talking about suicide rates for a long time. But this was a story about a young man who kind of epitomized so many of the issues in our mental health system. So Harry had asked for help. Harry had taken antidepressants. Harry had opened up to his mother. Harry had actually put himself voluntarily inside a mental health unit because he knew that he wasn't safe and he felt a sense of relief that he was with professionals who could keep an eye on him and look after him. And what happened was that Harry uh, told his clinicians that he was having suicidal thoughts, that he'd actually formulated a plan to end his life. Those comments weren't taken seriously or weren't acted upon sufficiently by his clinicians. And within a day or two, Harry had died by a self-inflicted death in that ward. So it took actually two years for Mm. us to get the ability through the courts to be able to tell Harry's story. And as part of that feature, I also interviewed Mike King. I also interviewed the Director of Mental Health, and that was a remarkable interview because the Director of Mental Health had forgotten the suicide rate. He could not remember the number of New Zealanders who'd taken their life the previous year. So it was just one of those stories where all of these elements came together, and it ran just a few months before the 2017 election. This was a key election issue. After the election, the new government came in. It spent $6 million on a mental health inquiry. So it just came at a particular time that I think it it struck a nerve for a lot of people. But it also had an impact on me because while I was filming that story, no one really knew that I was going through my own mental health struggles. I had been increasingly suffering from depression and I was just starting to experience suicidal thoughts. And there was a moment when I was sitting on Maria's back doorstep in Christchurch when we were filming the story and she read me a note that her son had written in the lead up to his death. And the note said, can't concentrate, never have any energy, I'm becoming more of a burden, I derive no pleasure from friends, I'm drinking too much, I'm a hopeless wreck, I don't like being so skinny, I get agitated and annoyed, and there is nothing in life to look forward to. 
And I realized as I was listening to this, because we had to film it a number of times, she read these words over and over and they started to sink in. And I went, hang on a second. All of those words are relevant to me. Those are the thoughts that are floating around in my own head. So through the process of doing this story, it actually made me wake up to just how bad things were for me. And it encouraged me to get some further help. And it would take another two or three years of descent into depression for me to decide to leave Auckland and leave my job. But I think this story was a key part in that process for me. Mm. I found it incredibly sad. Uh, for, for my own journey, I probably need to put it on the table. My mother suffered with strong mental illness and almost took her life a number of times. Mm. There were suicide notes. And so I watched Harry's uh, story the other day, knowing that we were going to chat about this, and felt a little triggered uh, yeah. myself. But I remember watching that and feeling incredibly sad for Harry mm. because he had done all the right things. Absolutely. But I also watched that having read your book, This Is Not How It Ends, and knowing your story, and sitting there watching that, especially that moment where you're sitting on the doorstep with her and thinking, Jahan's sitting there and he's hearing stuff that is his own story. Why would he do it? So one of my big questions is, knowing what was going on for you, why did you take the story? Well, precisely for that reason, because it mattered and because I could relate to it, I guess, from my own experience. One of the things that has surprised me through this whole experience of depression over the last few years is how it's changed the way that I do my job. I think when I was younger, I was much more gung-ho. I mean, let's face it, the reality of being a journalist is that you are called to step into the worst day of someone else's life or the worst period of their life. And when I was younger and I hadn't experienced enough hard stuff in life at that point, uh, I was probably more naive. I was maybe more optimistic. I was all about the story, and so I probably was oblivious to the depth of pain that was being experienced by the people that I was interviewing. But the experience I've had of depression has changed the way that I work because it's given me a sense of empathy for people that I didn't have before. I think what I realized was when I was younger, I was empathizing with people, but I was empathizing with my head rather than my heart. And after I went through a bit of my own stuff, I was able to sit with someone like Maria on a doorstep and go, I will never know everything that you've been through. I'll never be able to say, oh, I know what you've been through because you just don't. But I can empathize more than I could previously. I can share in a bit more of that pain with you. At the same time, that's really hard to balance, right? So I did a story once with a woman who makes plaster casts of the hands and feet of stillborn children. So her phone rings in the Waikato in the middle of the night. She goes into hospital, a baby's died, and there is that brief window of time where she can bring out her plaster kit and she can make these precious casts that will be the last memory that these parents have of their child. And she said, I've done this hundreds of times, hundreds and hundreds of times. And I said, how do you do that? How do you step into that moment over and over and over again with families? Do you get desensitized to it or what? And she said, a midwife once said to me, here's the thing, the family's grief is not your grief to carry. It's not yours. It doesn't belong to you. You don't have the right to take that with you. So when I step into stories like this that are really heavy, yes, that has a toll on me and it has an impact on me and it can be triggering and it can remind me of my own stuff. But I try and have good boundaries around that and I try and remember that, yep, I can get in the car and I can have a moment with myself after that story. But I actually have to leave that 
grief mm. with that family because it's theirs. Mm. And one thing that I'm grateful for is that in journalism, yes, there's secondary trauma and yes, that does have an impact on us. But ultimately, I'm there as an observer. I'm there to talk to people and to research and to write and to disseminate information. I'm not a paramedic. I'm not a police officer. I'm not rescuing someone from a burning building. I'm not a counsellor. I ultimately haven't got skin in the game in the way that those professionals do. So I, I am able to have that level of detachment and I should create boundaries that allow me to, to create that separation. Otherwise, the stuff can accumulate. Mm. This is really valuable, I think, for young, young journalists in mm. particular to hear. First, the fact that, yes, you're encountering people's grief and you're engaging in it, because uh, a lot of people don't understand that about journalism, I don't think. We think about uh, the paramedics. We even think about people like myself as a minister. You yes. know, I've, I've sat with families that have lost their baby. Uh, I've talked with the people who have created the casts and walked through families w- with that. But journalists are encountering grief as well. Of it's course. just being done in a, in a different way. You mentioned boundaries there. So for young journalists who might be hearing this, what do those boundaries look like? How do you create those boundaries? Well, I think you have to have a strong sense in your mind of what you're there to do. A couple of stories stand out for me. Uh, in 2015, I think it was, uh, the Sydney siege took place at the Lint Cafe. And my executive producer rang me from Auckland and said, get on the next flight to Sydney. And we couldn't get on a plane until the next morning. And so I had this sort of sleepless night, got to the airport. The siege was still underway. I was pumped full of adrenaline, ready to get on this flight. And I kept refreshing my phone. And then an alert came through to say that the siege had ended. And I remember refreshing and refreshing and refreshing, knowing that we were about to get on this flight, going, if, if people are dead that will justify this trip, that will justify the story. Now, that probably sounds incredibly callous in some form, but this is what we're trained to do. And I think there are parallels with some of those other professions where you're responding to other people's trauma, you're responding to emergencies. You don't train as a journalist to turn up at work and for nothing to happen. You train for the big stories, you train for those important stories, and typically they involve bad stuff. And what you've got to be quite careful of in your mind, and this is something that I had to learn when I was younger, is not putting yourself in a situation where you're almost willing bad stuff to happen or being drawn to stories that are dramatic or painful simply because they're dramatic or painful. That doesn't fit with my values. That's not the kind of person that I want to be. And something that I've only really reflected on in the last few years is that the news contaminates your worldview in in some way. For me, what it did is it made me always look for the negative. I was always looking for, where is the lie in what this person has just told me? How are they trying to spin me? Where's, you know, how are you going to get the headline out of this? How are you going to shock people? How are you going to make people concerned? And it's the old, if it bleeds, it leads thing, right? And the good thing now is I think we're seeing a, a diversity of forms of storytelling. If it bleeds, it leads is still there. But there's also things like solutions-focused journalism, which is this whole movement around every story needing to contain some form of hope. So if you're going to do a story on racial prejudice, for example, you have to include an example or a community group or someone who's doing something that gives the audience a sense that things could be better. So I think you have to have a clear idea in your head of, um, you know, and that was a wake-up call for me, that Sydney siege trip, of what am I here to do and not trying to control the outcome, being basically I'm here as an observer, I am here to report on whatever takes place, 
but I'm not going to allow myself to be sucked into that vortex of looking for negativity. Mm. The other thing uh, that comes to mind is when I was covering the Christchurch terror attack, I remember standing near Hagley Park and looking across and seeing Thomas Mead, who was then working for News Hub, doing a really intense-looking interview in the park, sitting on a park bench. And I was thinking, what is going on here? This was this was obviously something special. It was emotional. And I wanted to know what it was. So I sent my producer over and I said, go and find out what, what the deal is here and see whether that guy, whoever he is, will talk to us because our story is not running for a couple of days. And he came back and said, look, Thomas has said, if it's okay, don't <laughs> basically this is a this is a news hub thing and that's fine i was like okay and then i watched this guy walking home across hagley park and i later learned that this was a guy who lived very close to the mosque he had people jumping over his fence during the terror attack so this is the kind of person that we try to find right we want this person on camera and in, in news hub left and this guy is walking across Hagley Park by himself. And that was one of those classic split-second decisions where your traditional journalistic instinct is, we could go and sew this guy up. Like, if we went, if we ran after him, we would find some way of convincing him that he also needed to talk to us. Yes, you might have made an agreement with News Hub, but, you know, whatever reason you would insert there. And I remember watching him walking away, and I just thought, I can't do this. Mm-hmm. And... If I was 20, I probably would have. And I actually told the story at a journalism conference and there were some old hands there who said, yeah, back in the day when it was, you know, Holmes or Close Up versus Campbell Live, there was that intense competition between the shows. You would not be doing your job if you didn't chase after that person and try and steal the other network's story. But I just can't do that stuff anymore. And whether that makes me a better or worse journalist, I don't know. But it's I'm way more comfortable as a person. And I know that the decisions that I make, I can, I can live with. Mm. Just to say it then, thank you. Thank you for not chasing after him. And I think even in the years that we've been doing media chaplaincy, I've seen a, a slight ethical shift in New Zealand journalism mm. in that way. Now, there's still questionable stuff that goes on. Of course. But I think, I think people are becoming more attuned to the morality of the industry and, and what goes on. So thank you for that. Coming back to Harry yeah. and your story, uh, Harry's story into depression and ultimately his tragic suicide has a an arc. And that arc is a young guy who seemed to be living a good, happy life, loved dancing, was doing well. And then the Christchurch earthquake hit. Mm. And then we get a different Harry who takes on quite a responsibility for how he makes his mother feel. But you get the Harry who checked himself in to get help, gets let down by our institutions, and then ends up taking his own life. Your own story here has an arc as well. What did that arc look like for you? Well, I think the arc that I was looking for was similar to the arc that I tried to infuse into my storytelling for so long, which was basically this man falls in hole and then man climbs out of hole. Right. And I think that's the, that's the old school formula. And the reason that audiences like that is because there's a happy ending, you know, Mm. life is okay for someone, something bad happens, earthquake, terror attack, whatever it is. And then they find a way of quote unquote coming out the other side, as we always say. And it's interesting, you know, I've reflected recently on the language that we use and the language that I use when I write scripts. 
you know, it's always someone battling cancer or fighting mm. something. You know, we use, we just reach for this really convenient language because you don't need to explain that to people. They kind of, they can follow the journey really easily. The arc for me in my own life has been far more messy. And I think when I came out last year and talked about my mental health challenges and wrote my book, I really got to the end of that book and I wanted to say, right, I've come out the other side, life is rosy, the depression's gone, the suicidal thoughts are gone, all of that type of stuff. And that's just not the reality. And I felt that it would be dishonest if I was to deliver that as an end to my story. And actually, it would be far less satisfying than the Mm -hmm. truth. And the truth is... I'm still working out what this new chapter of my life looks like. I'm in a completely different position to where I was one, two, three years ago. I would say I'm in a really good position. I would say that I'm healthier mentally, physically, emotionally, spiritually than I've ever been. And so that's really that's really great. But at the same time, um, there's still confusion. There are still things that I'm trying to work out. There are still days where I might have suicidal thoughts and that might sound shocking to people because like, hang on a second, you've gone and written this book and you're doing all this advocacy. We're used to someone like you saying I'm all fixed now, but actually I can't say that because it's not the truth, but I can hold that intention with the fact that I am okay. I am safe. I choose to believe that I'm loved. I choose to believe that I have a hopeful future. And those are the things that I hold on to. But if you were to graph the arc, it does not look like a perfect curve where the curve goes down and the curve goes up. It's much more like a squiggly line. But I'm becoming more comfortable with that. Yeah, much more like real life than a movie. (laughs) <laughs> which I think is what people want. They want the movie yeah. so that at the end they can flick the TV off and just get on with life, where if you're engaging with real people and diving into the lives of real people, these things are never done. Yeah, and I think it's also changed the way that I tell stories and in particular the way that I end stories. You know, Like everybody else, I have that hunger to you know, swell the orchestral music at the end and, and have the person walking or riding or biking off into the sunset. And it's changed the. It, it's it's made me reflect on how I end stories. Now I I try more, and I'm getting better at this. Leaving things open ended, leaving things unresolved, and maybe the audience doesn't like that, and they want to know how everything turned out. But that's their problem. <laughs> well, I think it's perfectly illustrated with Harry's story, though. That story ends with the the music that he so loved, but mm. his mother dancing. But the sense that the journey, the story goes on for his mother, and mm. us sitting here talking about Harry's story is a continuation of that journey. Coming back to you, the book is really honest. It's extremely open and honest. And as someone who had very minor interactions with you as your story was playing out, had no idea that it was going on. For people who haven't read the book, what stuff was going on in the background for you that other people just couldn't see? Well, what was going on in the foreground was that I had a supposedly successful career, that I was young, that I was ambitious, that I was traveling a lot, that I was on TV, all of those red herrings that we look at in each other's lives and think, well, that person must be fine. And I think also people are confused by the whole notion of mental illness. I don't like the term mental illness because it suggests this binary setup whereby you're either mentally ill or mentally well. And I don't think I fitted either of those categories. What was happening in the background was I'd moved to Auckland at the age of 26. 
I'd left behind my friends and my family and my social support networks and the whole life that I had in Wellington. I'd moved to an unfamiliar city without knowing many people, so I was finding my feet alone. I'd started working on Sunday with people who'd been doing that job for 20 or 30 years that I admired and looked looked up to, so there was pressure to perform. I was doing stories that were really tough, and no one forced me to do those. I gravitated towards the hard stories because I wanted to prove myself. So it was a combination of all of those factors, and also I think in terms of my my friendships, you know, I, I, I'm very, I'm a very emotional person and I'm very emotionally expressive and I kind of talk about my feelings all the time to other people's detriment. But uh, what was frustrating for me was that I felt like I was, I was talking and I was explaining and I was telling a small number of people in my life how hard things were, but a lot of people didn't get it. And what I've had to learn over time is that there's a number of reasons for that. Some people just don't get it because they can't relate to it. They cannot wrap their heads around what it's like to be in serious mental distress. Other people were distracted. I mean, we live busy lives. People's lives are full. I also think that I was probably my own worst enemy and that because I'm a high-functioning person and because I was able to mask that a lot of the time, maybe what I was saying didn't match up with how I looked or what my life looked like because it was kind of like, well, he's saying that he's feeling this bad. But actually, he's getting by okay. He's probably fine. So it was a combination of all of those things that that made that period tough. And ultimately, after, you know, counseling and antidepressants and exercise and all of the things that I tried, you know, all of the textbook stuff that I tried, I realized that actually no one was riding in on a white horse to save me. I needed to prioritize my own well-being. And I didn't want to leave. I didn't want to go to TVNZ and say, hey, I need six months off. But that was, to me, the only thing that I had left in in my list of tools basically was to step away completely and the reason that was so hard and I think a lot of journalists will be able to relate to this is I had built so much of my identity around my work and I think the funny thing is people say oh well you know maybe you should have taken time off and and so to me the idea of finishing covering the Christchurch terror attack and taking a week or two off and going and lying in bed staring at the roof was the last thing that I needed. I mean, that would have been terrible for my well-being. I needed to keep moving. So there was this really bizarre thing where the lifestyle that was fulfilling me and giving me a sense of worth and and allowing me to do all this great work, that lifestyle was also kind of killing me Mm -hmm. at the same time. And I went on holiday at one point in the middle of 2019 and the word that was stuck in my head was circuit breaker you just need a circuit breaker and I knew that I didn't need another holiday after that what I needed was actually to break the circuit to step having been in a newsroom for 10 plus years having been in Auckland for four years I actually just needed to get out so that I could have some space and then work out what I was going to do and you know for anyone that's listening to this that's been in that cycle that I was in for so long I would highly encourage you to work out what would a circuit breaker look like for me so that you can actually just regain yourself? Mm. An important point in there is, I think, a question of identity. Uh, Well, for me as a Pākehā, the first question that I'll often ask people is, what do you do? Uh, It's an identity question, just like Māori might ask, uh, where are you from? Find out who are your people. That's an identity question. You mentioned just there the identity wrapped up in being a journalist. Mm. So having been through that journey with your own mental well-being, having gone through the circuit breaker and now being in the space that you're in, if I was to ask, who are you? How would you answer that? I think I will always be a storyteller. But storytelling can come in many different forms. 
So when I was younger, the absolute dream was being in front of a camera, holding a microphone, sitting down to interview someone, traveling around the country, being on TV, all of that stuff. Not because I was ever really interested in the public-facing aspects of the uh, of the job. That was never really of interest to me. It was, as John Campbell says, you know, journalism is a get-into-jail-free card. It was the, the absolute thrill of having a ticket to anywhere you want to go, pretty much. But I think what's changed for me is that um, my identity is is far less now in what I produce. Have my stories rated? Am I a finalist at the Media Awards this year? All of those things that just get into your head, as I assume they do for people in other industries as well. And that stuff doesn't matter as much. I think I'm just much more comfortable in my own skin and I'm happy for my self-worth to be defined by my relationships with the people in my life. And, and I can also look back at the stuff that I've done and, and say, you've done it, you know. When Barbara Walters retired, you know, epic titan of American broadcasting, um, she did an interview where someone was telling her all the great stuff that she'd done. And she said, but was I present for any of it? You know, was I actually there for any of it? I was always so focused on the next thing. And I think when you try and build a career you can become so distracted by all of that other stuff. And then when you look back, you're like, that was never what was most important to me. And so um, I can look back and say, actually, I've had a bunch of great experiences. I've got to travel. I've got to cover big news events. And when I resigned, when I said to TVNZ, right, I'm stepping away, I did that in the knowledge that they may never want me back. I may never work in television. I may never work in journalism. What if I end up doing something that I really don't like? And this is the biggest mistake of my life. So I had all that internal chatter going on. But the way that I rationalized that was, you know, I've had a great run and I hope that this run will continue in some form, but I'm no longer dependent on this job or this job title or this platform, as awesome as those things are. I'm not dependent on those things for my identity and for my self-worth. That's what allowed me to cut that cord. And if I'd still been tethered to that, I would never have been able to take the time off and I certainly would never have been able to resign. So I think the fact that I was able to step away showed that I'd already found a way of reframing my identity or at least starting that process. Mm, It's really good. I have a real concern in our culture for people who are in the tunnel. They're mm. in that in that dark place and they feel like they're doing it on their own. In a culture that is loaded with toxic masculinity where countless men feel alone mm. because they don't actually know how to form deep, vulnerable, honest relationships. In a culture where we're pumping money into mental health, yet it seems to be going into a hole and not achieving much of anything. In a place where individualism is rife and people are disconnected from one another, I'm concerned. I'm concerned for people in the tunnel. There are probably going to be, I would imagine, by nature of the topic that we're talking about and the industry that we're largely talking to, there are going to be people who are in the tunnel and haven't spoken to anybody. If you could say anything to them, what would you say? That you have a story and that it matters. And very simply... The story that you're carrying around in your head is a story that has been written by you over many, many years. It's a story you probably started to write in childhood. And that story has been influenced by trauma. It's been influenced by loss. It's been influenced by all the highs and lows of the stuff that you've experienced. And the story that you're carrying around in your head, I pretty much guarantee, will be having a significant impact on your relationships, on your behaviors, and significantly on your mental health. What is that story? 
do you have an answer to that question? Do you know what the narrative is that explains who you are, where you've come from, and where you might be going? Have you ever explored that? And if you haven't explored that, I'd really encourage you to do that. I'd really encourage you to explore how the story of your life may be influencing your mental health. And what we know from the research is that people who are able to tell more hopeful and helpful stories about their lives tend to have better mental health outcomes. That is not a silver bullet. It's not a cure-all, but it is the most interesting and profound tool that I've found on a personal level, and that's speaking from personal experience, in trying to make sense of the mental health struggles that all of us inevitably have. And I think it's also about remembering that distress or pain or conflict or suffering or whatever you call it is a fundamental part of being human. It does not mean that you're broken. And actually, the process of sharing that with another person, whether that's a professional like a counsellor or whether it's a trusted friend, can be hugely liberating in and of itself. And what storytelling allows you to do is actually to recast the events of your life in a different light. You can't change the fact that you were abused. You can't change the fact that your parents divorced. You can't change the fact that maybe you've lost your job because of COVID. But we, each of us is the author of our own story. And as the author, you always have choices. And to me, that's such an incredibly hopeful place to try and take this conversation. Mm. Jahan, thank you. Thank you for uh, this conversation. Thank you for your openness, for sharing your story in a way that I think uh, helps other people, not just here, but in your book. This is not how it ends. I want to just ask one more question, uh, because I think your insight into the industry, uh, your place in the industry is uh, quite profound. If I were to ask, uh, what do you think the future of journalism in New Zealand looks like? What do you reckon? I think what we're starting to see is that the old model of journalism, the adversarial model of journalism, certainly in current affairs, which I've worked in for a long time, the idea of going into someone's house and closing the curtains and getting a tight shot of their face and making them cry, uh, that's on its way out. What people want is something that's real. And I think the rise of social media and the internet has really challenged us and has held us as journalists to account in how we construct stories. It's like people have seen behind the curtain. The audience has a really strong sense now of what is real and what is not real. And I think the challenge for us is to tell stories that are well-constructed and informed and empowering, but also stories that resonate with people on an emotional level. And in particular, I think people are so overloaded with content at the moment this is one of my big things at the moment we are just pouring content down people's throats and they cannot deal with this consumers are becoming more discerning they want to find a way to cut through the noise and we have to help them do that and what that may look like maybe less content i mean i was writing a weekly column for business desk last year and at the start of this year i went to the editor and i said look can we make this monthly because actually i don't have the content, I don't have the time, I don't have the inclination to deliver. I just can't deliver a column every single week that I can look at someone in the eye and say, this is worth your time. It is 100% worth your time reading these 800 words. I can do that once a month. I can't do that every week. So I think we actually need to reflect on the forms of content that we're producing, the frequency of that content. And also, we just need to give people content that reminds them that they can do stuff about the problems in society, not content that simply weighs them down or makes them even more depressed. 
Mm, solutions journalism. Jahan, yeah. it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Frank. Thanks to Jahan for sharing his story. Thanks to Radio New Zealand for hosting this series. And thanks to you for listening. If you or someone you know is in need of support, please contact Lifeline on 0800 543 354 or free text 4357. Are you a fan of what we are doing here on Recovering? Then please give this podcast a five-star rating and share it with someone who might find it valuable. Remember to click follow to catch future episodes. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. At Media Chaplaincy New Zealand, we believe in the value of media. So we offer free, independent, and confidential support for media professionals. If you know someone who works in the media industry, please encourage them to get in touch. One of our chaplains would love to take them out for a coffee, on us of course, to make room for a private chat with someone who just gets it. Head to mediachaplaincy.nz to find out more.